Wake, obviously. It's warm, isn't it? Yeah. I think you're the only one that likes it, Phil. <laughs> All right. Okay. There's two. There's two of them. <laughs> I've been um, I've been thinking and praying, and I spoke at uh, somewhere during the week a couple of weeks ago about those um, pivotal points in Scripture, um, and we can think about them in the in the New Testament. Testament, we can think about the, the sort of the, the, the confession of Peter at Caesarea Philippi, that moment where Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And they say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that sort of almost, sort of, almost the whole gospel sort of pivots on that moment because it changes. And from that moment, Jesus then sort of moves on. Um, we might think in the book of Acts, you know, the, maybe the, the conversion of Paul or, or the Council of Jerusalem. There's those, those pivotal moments where, where things change. And uh, that got me thinking uh, about, um, so where are those pivotal moments in the Old Testament? And I came back to uh, a passage that uh, I, know, I know quite well. It's sort of been uh, uh, an important one. I'll tell you a little bit. I think I've told the story before, but I'll tell you a bit about it in a moment. Um, it's in 2 Samuel, and it's the moment where, where the having gone through the sort of Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants, we get the. She's sitting on the floor. <laughs> we get the Davidic covenant. This is where that moment where where um, where the house of David. Is, is sort of set, uh, is prophesied and, and given. Uh, and so if you want to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, I'm just going to read the first uh, 17 verses. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. After the king, that's King David, was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them any more as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house, a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors. 
I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. What he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, when I removed from whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. It's a, it's a, a scripture I know well, partly because um, I, don't, I think I've told this story before, uh, that uh, when, when I finished theological college, um, I was moving to um, my first church in Walthamstow, but they didn't have a house for me. And I, I booked my removal firms, and they said, well, where are you moving to? And I said, E17, Walthamstow E17. And the time went on, and nothing happened. And about a fortnight before I was supposed to move, I had the removers phoning me out and say, could you be just a little more specific about where you're moving to? And people around me started to say, do you think this is right? Is this of God if they've not got somewhere for you to live and you've only got a few days more? And uh, I was in Lincoln, um, which is where I was at college, and uh, I was walking down the, the street on my way to college one day And uh, this person, whom I'd never, ever met, came across to me with a piece of paper, and he said, the Lord has told me to give you this. And in that piece of paper, it said, 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verse 11. And chapter 7, verse 11 says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And the whole passage starts in verse 5. Go and tell my servant David. <laughs> Within a few days, they'd found a house. Um, and, uh, and I moved on time. So this is the passage that's sort of close to my heart. And, um, and so when I was th- thinking about sort of key passages in the Old Testament, I sort of came back to this and I thought, no, I've, I've, you know, I've been there before. But then, you know, as the Holy Spirit does, it sort of says, no. I want, you to, I want you to speak about this. So that's what I'm going to do. We've, um, we've recently been celebrating the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, haven't we? The seven, 70 years. Um, King David didn't reign for that long. He, uh, it was in, in terms of the Queen, it was uh, just 40 years. Um, but his kingdom... God says, last forever. And because we know that, that Jesus came in the line of David. And that was what, uh, what God was, was speaking about here. Um, and this was the moment in the Old Testament where it sort of moved from that, that as I say, that sort of, um, the people of Israel had sort of been, they moved into the promised land, they got themselves established. Um, now they had a, they had a king, and, and David had taken the throne. And now it's almost God says, right, okay, now that's, that's, we draw a line here because we need to move on. We need to look to the future, to the time when I will bring my, the, the Messiah. And uh, this is the sort of the, the verses that uh, the, the Hebrews would look to 
in terms of, uh, uh, of that, that promise of the Messiah. But I want, I want not to, uh, to, to think about the covenant um, because, you know, we could, you know, we could do a whole year's Bible study on the covenant. I want to just tonight uh, just concentrate not on the covenant but on the covenant God. Um, and as we come tonight on this warm evening, not to do anything to, but just to be reminded of some important things that I think this passage reminds us. Or as, as I was reading, one commentary wrote, he said, let's, why not focus not on the promise, but on the promiser? And I want to just focus on the promiser, because I think this passage tells us some important truths about God. We're told that this is um, a settled moment in David's life. Maybe a moment of rest for him. We don't quite know where it comes in the sort of historical thing because the, the writer of, of Samuel um, would group things together. Um, and so, you know, we, we have the sort of the moment where the Ark of the Covenant is brought to Jerusalem and this passage follows on from that. When we get into chapter 8, he's back at war with the Philistines. Um, but he's put these bits together um, um, because he wants to teach us something. That They brought the Ark of the Covenant and there was a moment, a settled moment. The king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. This was a brief, settled moment in David's life. A moment of rest, a moment of reflection, a moment for him to sit back and look, to notice things. And we all need those moments, don't we? All those moments where we can just sit. In fact, the, one of the translations translates that first verse is that David sat before the Lord. A moment when we stop. A moment, a settled moment. And we pray that we might, maybe through these summer months, we might get, each of us might get that settled moment, that moment just to reflect, uh, to take stock. And David sat there, and as he sat before the Lord, as he looked out, you can just imagine him sitting in his palace, looking out over Jerusalem. He built a beautiful palace for himself, and he's sitting there in the cool of the evening. This is me imagining the cool of the evening, just looking across Jerusalem, taking a moment, looking out, Perhaps reflecting on his life, how how you know going back to when he was a teenager, when he was a, that um, that that um, shepherd boy, where he was called to be king, and and then the, the experiences he'd, he'd had through that as he as he tried to serve Saul. Someone um, I read that uh, someone worked out that, uh, that Saul had tried to kill David on sixteen occasions. You know that's what he'd been through, but eventually. The Lord had brought him to this place where he had given him rest from all his enemies around him. Yes, there were things ahead. In fact, it's only a few chapters ahead and we get to chapter 11 and we all know about chapter 11 and Bathsheba, don't we? But this was a moment in David's life. This was a moment, a settled moment where he sat before the Lord, where he could see how God had fulfilled his promises that he could rest in his presence, have that moment of intimacy with God. 
And how we long for those moments, aren't we? Those moments of feeling safe and settled. I read recently an old Jewish story about, uh, about a young boy named Mordecai who refused to attend school and refused to study Hebrew. Whenever his parents tried to make him read the Torah, the, the Word of God, he would sneak away and, and go and play on the swing or, or, or something like that. And eventually the exasperated parents brought him to a famous psychiatrist, but that proved futile. Nothing changed. The boy seemed to grow more distant, more lonely, more hardened every week. And then finally, in utter desperation, Mordecai's parents brought him to a local rabbi, a warm, wise, spiritual man. And the parents explained to him their plight, pouring out their frustration, despair. And the rabbi listened intently. Without saying a word, he gently picked up the boy, took him in his arms and held him close to his chest. The rabbi held Mordecai close enough and tight enough so the boy could feel the safe, rhythmic beating of the rabbi's heart. Then, without a word, he handed the child back to his parents. And from that point on, Mordecai listened, studied, did his Hebrew, as he was told. He'd had that moment of intimacy, that moment of feeling safe, that moment of hearing the heartbeat. And there's a moment where David hears the heartbeat of God in this safe moment, this moment of intimacy. He hears the heartbeat of God. All that happened to him, he drew near to God. David could sense the safe, gentle heartbeat in this settled moment. But in this moment, he then comes up with a plan. We're very good at that, aren't we? You know, we always come up with a plan. And uh, we're told, he, he tells Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar where the ark of God remains in a tent. And Nathan says to him, well, do whatever you think. Go ahead, whatever you've got in mind, do it for the Lord is with you. It's the first time we're introduced to Nathan the prophet. You know, he becomes important later on. Nathan was to David what Samuel was to Saul. He was the Ark of the Covenant which he brought into Jerusalem and it, and it represented for the, for the Hebrew people the visible presence of God in the midst of them. It was an extremely important piece of furniture, if you like, that Saul had um, neglected for decades. But as soon as David had become king, he wanted the Ark of God placed in Jerusalem. It was to be you know, right at the heart of the political and spiritual capital of the people of God. And it made sense. Here they were, sitting in this wonderful palace, and here was the Ark sitting in a tent. And Nathan says, well... It makes sense to me. We should build a permanent place to house the ark of God. But God has other ideas. We know that well, don't we? We have a plan. God has other ideas. <laughs> We've all been there, I'm sure. And Nathan goes home and we're told, and that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? 
I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the the Israelites out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. After the people of God left Egypt under the leadership of Moses, God gave them directions for the construction of the ark of the covenant and the tabernacle in which it was to, to remain. This was hundreds of years earlier and never once did God say, no, I want a permanent building. Never once did he say that. And he says, the reason I didn't do that is because my people weren't yet properly settled. God had travelled with his people. I love the way somebody, uh, somebody wrote about this, this verse. They said, do you see what Yahweh is saying about himself? He is the God who travels with his people in all their topsy-turvy here and there journeys and wanderings. Do his people live in tents? So does he. Are they a pilgrim people on their way to the land of promise? So he is a pilgrim God sharing the rigours of the journey with them. We're reminded that not only do we dwell in the presence of God, but God is always present. Recently uh, got, um, and I'm sure you've heard this before, got an invitation to a, 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 um, an anniversary party, and it says on the bottom, we don't want your presence, we want your presence. A play on words. We have God's presence with us. God is a God who's always present. He comes to be with his people. He says, I've been moving about in the tent with my people because they move about, so I move with them. I'm not going to be in just one place. I'm with my people. I'm always present. God is our constant presence in whom we rejoice. He travels with us. He isn't remote and distant sitting on a cloud somewhere. He will be never limit, ever limited to a particular time or space. And the incredible thing, he has never a more important place to be than with us, with his people. Again, I, heard, uh, I read a story recently about, um, about a former speaker of the House of Representatives in America. And the teenage daughter of one of the reporters that he knew had died suddenly. And the next morning, the reporter heard a knock on his door. And he opened it, and there was the speaker standing before him. He says, I just came by to see what I could do to help. The reporter, stuttering and trying to recover from his surprise, indicated he didn't think there was anything the speaker could do. They were in the process of making all the arrangements. And the speaker said, well, have you all had your coffee this morning? And he's confessed, no, they hadn't had time to do that. Well, at least I can make the coffee, he said. So he went in and made his way to the kitchen in search of the coffee. And while he was out there busy making the coffee, the reporter suddenly rem- remembered that the speaker on that particular day, on that particular morning, had a regular weekly appointment at a particular place. And he, so he goes in and said to him, Mr. Speaker, um, aren't you supposed to be having breakfast with the president in the White House this morning? And he says, well, I was. But I called the president to told him that I had a friend who was in trouble and I couldn't come. God is present with us and he never has a more important place to be. 
The third thing that uh, we learn from this, uh, this passage is something we know well. The graciousness of God. In verses 8 to 16, God makes a promise to David. The promise is profound. It is a covenant, as I say. The Davidic covenant. And the Hebrew text of verses 9 to 15 contain 10 I will statements by God. Each one highlights a different aspect of God's promise to David, to his offspring, to Israel, to his people. He promises to make David a great name. I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. David promises to make his reputation an enduring legacy. He promises to make he promises David a place for his people and I will provide a place for my people Israel and I will plant them in so they have a home of their own and will no longer be disturbed. He promises David a dynasty. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Instead of building a house instead of David building a house for the Lord the Lord will build one for David. The word house here in this instance is not a physical structure but a dynasty, the house of David. God will establish his kingdom through David. And we know that's what Jesus is all about. That's what Jesus is all about. This is the amazing grace of God at work. And as David responds in prayer and worship, later in the chapter he cries out, Who am I, sovereign Lord? That What is my family that you have brought me? Thus far, and as if it were not enough in your, your sight, O Lord, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? The answer is yes. That's the way God deals with us. That's the way God deals with man. He gives us what we don't deserve. It's amazing grace. I've just been... Uh, Recently, reading, uh, rereading the, the, that wonderful book, What's So Amazing About Grace. If you've not read it, you must read it. That just talks so much about the amazing grace of God. There's a moment where C.S. Lewis is at a conference and they're talking about what is it that makes Christianity different from every other religion. And he, he just responds very simply and says, It's easy, it's grace. That God gives us what we do not deserve. It's amazing love and forgiveness. And David saw that. Well, who am I, he says, that you should do this for me? Who, what is my family that you should do this for me? Maybe, you know, that's been a response of us sometimes when we say, Lord, who am I that you would do this for me? And he says, I'm going to do it anyway. You don't deserve it. No, you don't deserve it. But I do it for you anyway, because I love you. The amazing grace of God. David struggled to get his hand, head around that. And to be honest, so do most of us. It's never about what we can do for God, but what he can do for us. And fourthly, in this passage, we learn that God's promises never fail. As we come to the heart of this covenant that David makes, that God makes with David. He says that when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. 
and I will establish your kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. Do those words echo somewhere? I shall be his father and he shall be my son. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. Yes, there are good kings and there are bad kings. Phil was saying this morning, there are, trust me, you read kings, there are some bad kings. <laughs> one, sometimes one after another. And there was a time when, when the whole thing collapsed and the people of Israel were taken into exile by the, by the Babylonians, Babylonians. But David's seed and line continued. God's promises never fail. This is an important moment in the life of David, but also an important moment in the Old Testament, in the whole of Scripture. It's an important moment in the Hebrew story. Here the messianic hope is rooted and they longed and waited for the king who would come after David. And it starts here. And there is much to be said about the covenant, but as I said, I just want tonight just to focus not on the promise, but on the promiser. It tells us so much about the God who sent his son. It tells us so much about Jesus. This is the God in whose presence is the safe and settled space. We've all heard of the word shalom and translated it's often translated peace, but it has that sense of being a, a, a wide open, settled space. A space where you're not under threat. A space where you're not disturbed. A space where you have room to breathe. A space where we hear the heartbeat of God. And pray that we may seek that. It tells us about the God who travels with us, moving from place to place with a tent at his, at his dwelling. Just like the Jews fell into the trap when they did build the temple, that they, they become convinced that God dwelt within the temple. And we do the same, don't we, as Christians? The history of Christianity is littered with, with this sense that, you know, that God belongs in a particular building. But God is never going to be tied down to a building. He always is in his tent, following his people. His presence is never limited to a particular place, never to a particular building. He is constantly present, and it's good to be reminded of that. It tells us of his grace. God unveils his plan, and David knows that he's completely unworthy of being a part in that plan. Who am I? Are any of us worthy? Do any of us deserve it? No. But God does it anyway. Maybe you're feeling unworthy. God does it anyway because of his amazing, incredible, generous grace. It's good to be reminded of that. And it tells us that his promises never fail. Sometimes it takes a heck of a long time to see those promises work out. But God's promises never fail. The Israelites went through all kinds of high and incredible highs and incredible lows, but God promised that one day he would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
And that's what he did in Jesus. That was the plan. And he delivered because his promises never fail. It's good to be reminded of that. Let's pray.